This is the way. This is the way. I knew I'd find someone in the room who's a fan. How many of you know that reference when I say this is the way? Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of us. There's a few of us out there. This is the way. This is a Star Wars reference. It's true. Uh, It's a reference to the way of the Mandalorian. And uh, how many of you have seen Mandalorian? Some of us know this. We've watched. Okay. So the Mandalorian, they often talk to each other about the way of life, the creed by which they live. And as they remind themselves of this way, they say to each other, this is the way. This is the way. That's right. So we're a people in this series who are looking at the way in which we walk by the Spirit. The people of God walk in step with Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit grows up in us. This is the way. It's the way of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I may have watched too much Star Wars over the holiday break. It's possible. Um, I actually, my family, we were feeling pretty good about our level of self-control because we waited to start our seven-day free trial of Disney Plus until the holiday break, okay? So then we could watch the entire first season of Mandalorian all the way through, and we saw the new movie, and then we watched all of the other episodes, and all of the animated content, and all of the spinoffs, all of the things. And at some point you start feeling a little bit gross about the sheer quantity of Star Wars you consumed, and we did. Um, But we started moving on to other more edifying and educational content. We started moving on to baking shows, right, and home improvement. Um, We started watching inspirational sports films based on real events. And um, my husband's personal favorite, we started watching a lot of gardening shows. So I I don't know how many of you are gardeners. I am not. I just eat the fruit of the garden. My husband is the gardener. But he especially likes Monty Don, if any of you watch gardening shows. And he was really caught up with one particular idea around gardening over the break. And it was the idea of potager. So if you don't know potager gardening, it's a French word and it refers to a kitchen garden. And he was so into this, and I don't know if it's because last winter was you know, the worst winter on record in Iowa. But by New Year's Day, he had already purchased all of his seed varieties and his seed starting apparatus. And Chris kept asking all of us in the family, he'd say things like, how do you feel about purple Brussels sprouts? Or or how do you feel about beans that taste like asparagus? Or what, what, what do you think about a pear tree that would grow eight varieties of pear? So I don't actually know what in the world's gonna be growing up in our garden this summer, but I know he is ready and he's prepared. And this idea of potager gardening really captured him. Now potager, in a French kitchen garden, the idea is that you don't plant beds with a single variety as we often do. So it's, you know, we often do a bed of tomatoes, right? And there's peas and lettuces over here. And in potager, the idea is that the fruit's companion 
with all the other varieties. So fruits are growing up with vegetables and with herbs and with flowers. And you can see some pictures here on the screen of these lush and vibrant gardens. And it's a little wild and chaotic, but my staid Dutch husband has been captured by the romance of potager gardening. And so that is the way we're gonna go this summer. But I, I love this image because we're talking about the fruit of the spirit growing up in just this kind of way, right? So Tom talked about how as we walk in step with the spirit, and if you imagine that it's like a garden, right? And the soil is the spirit, that all of these varieties of fruit are actually companioning and growing up in symmetry together, right? And if the soil is the spirit and these fruits grow up in symmetry, then the frame or the theme of this garden is love which we looked at last week. Now the image of a garden, uh, the image of fruitfulness and bearing fruit um, as we're looking at in our Galatians 5 core text in the series. Now this isn't a new image in scripture, right? It's actually one of the most vivid and continuous meta images or meta narratives in all of scripture. So think about it, where do we start in the Bible? We start in Genesis, Genesis in a garden. Right? We start in a garden. And we know that there are all kinds and varieties of trees. And in particular, we're asked to pay attention to the tree of life and to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And actually, we're commanded not to eat of that fruit. And we all know how that went. And so you fast forward to the time when people are walking out of step with God and his spirit and the prophets are writing. And we hear from the prophets like Ezekiel who look ahead to a new day, a new way. And Ezekiel describes this vision of this new heavens. And in Ezekiel 47, the image starts, it's in a barren, dead place, but it starts with the image of a sanctuary, a temple. And from it flows, starting as just a trickle, but growing to an incredible, forceful river. And as this flows from the sanctuary and encounters the deadness and barrenness of the land, it says that the salt waters become fresh and the dead things come to life. And in Ezekiel 47, it says fruit trees of all kinds grow on the bank of this river flowing from the sanctuary. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. Every month they bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit serves for food and their leaves for healing. And Ezekiel's pointing actually to this reality that we see fulfilled in John's revelation. Right? And we go from a garden to a city, right? Two people, God loves people, it's a city, it's full of people, but in the middle of the city still flows that river of his spirit, right? His presence. And we see again in Revelation 22, this tree of life. It says in 22, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit. Can you imagine all those kinds of fruit, all yielding fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Do you see it? You see that meta narrative? 
And so we find ourselves again in this core text in Galatians 5. And I'd love to have you turn with me, if you're following along on your phone or in your Bible, to that passage in Galatians 5. And as we heard from Tom last week, again, we see the symmetry, right, of all the fruits are growing up as we're walking in step with the Spirit. It's not, ah, one person gets joy and one gets um, patience and one gets kindness, but they all grow up in symmetry. And the theme of it is love. And we can really see that frame of love right in this very text. So look at this Galatians 5. This is the, um, the first and the last part of the section we're looking at. So in 13, you, my brothers and sisters, you're called to be free. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And then as we go ahead, that first listed aspect of fruit is that love that is the theme that holds it all together. We see love. So we have symmetry, we have the frame of love, and we also have asymmetry in this passage, right? So when you think about gardening, what is not compatible in the life of the garden? Look at this picture. It is clearly deer, right? They are cute at Christmas. They are the enemy in January. They are eating our blueberry bushes to the ground. If you garden, you know they cannot cohabitate, right? The garden and the deer are at odds with each other. They're oil and water. And if you look at this Galatians text, we see asymmetry in the passage too. So look at this other portion of Galatians 5. If you look at, um, we'll go to that next slide. You see it there. Look at 17. It It contrasts and says we have this asymmetry of the acts of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. 17, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. They are asymmetrical, right? There's one other thing I thought that was so interesting in this Galatians text that we're studying as I looked at it more. If you've grown up in church at all, or if you've even in your adult life been exposed to this text or the idea of fruit of the Spirit, it's likely that you have been primarily conditioned to read it through a very individual lens, right? We, We come to this text and we're challenged to say, Um, Kathy, how much patience and gentleness and kindness is evident in your life, right? Or which of these acts of the flesh are are you seeing in your day-to-day living, right? We're often taught to look at it through this individualistic lens. And I think for us to see the fullness of this text, it's really important for us to sit in a communal space, Because when you look at the Galatians text, Paul is primarily, he seems very concerned with the impact that the fruit that's born, whether of the flesh or the spirit, is having on the community, right? It's eroding the very nature and fabric of the relationships of the people of God whom are sent to be the witness of Christ to the world. And so I wonder if even it's helpful for us to look around the community and say, what are the acts 
the behaviors that are common to us as a people. Where do we see this companioning fruit growing up, not just in, in me and in my life and heart, but in us? Might that tell us something more as we're in this series on the fruit of the Spirit? So today, specifically, we are looking at joy. And consider with me, if joy is growing up among this fruit of the Spirit in us, in the soil of the Spirit of us in our community, what does that look like? Here's some expressions of what that might look like. It might look like the settled assurance that the Lord Jesus is in control of all the details of life. It looks like the quiet confidence that ultimately everything's gonna be all right. The determined choice to praise him in every situation. This is present in us even when there's suffering and loss, death, illness, accident, persecution, and communities where joy is growing up in the soil of the spirit are marked by generosity, a faith that is growing, right relationships, inclusion, justice, hospitality. These are the markers of a people in whom joy is growing up. Joy itself, the word. Let's look at the word just a little bit in the Greek. So the word for joy is kata in the Greek. And some of the implications around this word are of calm delight and exceeding gladness. And it's interesting because it's really close. It's cognate. It's from the same Greek word that grace comes from or charis. And so when we're told to rejoice, the literal command you might say is to be conscious of, to delight in his grace, which is his very essence. And it's so interesting. Paul loves to talk about the pairing of joy and peace. These are twin fruits, right? These fruits especially companion well together in the garden of the community that's rooted in the way of the Spirit. And so just in Romans alone within a chapter, we see a couple of references to this. Paul writes, for the kingdom of God, it's not a matter of eating and drinking meaning it's not about some of the legalism and practices of what they can and can't eat and drink, right? But it's of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Or Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. Are you seeing that? So joy and peace companioning together in the soil of the Spirit, right? This is the way. This is the way we walk in. We're drawing as a teaching team a lot from Tim Keller's book called Galatians for You. And I, and I really do like the way he defines joy. So on that next slide, you'll see he defines it like this. It's a delight in God for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. That's joy. It's opposite is despair and hopelessness. And the counterfeit of joy, of kara, is an elation that's based on experiencing blessings. 
not the blesser, but blessings, causing mood swings based on our circumstances. Isn't that great? A delight in God for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. Now, it's important that we not be confusing joy with maybe a naturally more cheerful temperament. Some people just are naturally a little bit more positive or optimistic or cheerful, right? We have people like that in our lives, perhaps. I am not one of those people. Um, I appreciate them. Um, I, I really like to use StrengthsFinders. Some of you might know StrengthsFinders as a tool. We use it in our leadership teams and in our varsity quite a bit. And... Um, in the Gallup StrengthsFinders, there's 34 themes or talents that people often lead or live out of. And one of those is the theme of positivity. And I love having people with this strength on my team and in my life. They're really important for me to have around. Um, but this isn't necessarily joy, right? One of my top themes or strengths is strategy. So strategic is the way that Clifton talks about it. And as a strategic person, what I can do is I look at something and I can kind of see it, I can walk around it, and I can see it from every angle. As a strategic person, I want to see all the aspects. So I can tell you and find something positive in any kind of given situation or circumstance or idea. But I'll tell you what, I can also walk around that thing and tell you exactly what, what's going to go wrong with it what's not quite up to snuff, where it's going to fall apart, right? Uh, this sometimes goes badly for me, right? And I am prone to see the downside of things. So I need people who are positive and optimistic in my life. But that, my friends, is not necessarily joy, right? Because joy is a delight in God for the sheer beauty and wonder and awe of who he is, the worth of who God is. And if joy is present, even when also present are things like death and illness and pain and trial and disappointment and despair, how can this be? And I... I'm not so naive. I know that in a room even of this size, that there are probably several of you in this room for whom suffering and death and loss and illness, they've crashed right into your world this week. And they've come particularly near this week to you. And honestly, probably the rest of us, we're, we're only one degree removed from that kind of pain. I can think of three specific circumstances right now. People's lives have just been thrown into turmoil just in the last week, right? So that's a reality we live in. And if joy is present, no matter what also exists in the circumstances of our life, how can it be? So we want to look actually to the example of Jesus. I love the text in Hebrews 12. For this, so it starts off and it says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles, right? It's throwing off the acts of the flesh. 
And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So now we're not in a garden anymore. We're in a race, right? That's the image. We're in a race. And it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand at the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So let's consider him. Let's consider Jesus. Think about that image. I want you to let, let yourself kind of go there with that image of a, a path, like a track, a path, a race before you. So the Lord Jesus is running it, right? And it says that he encounters the cross on this path. And he encounters the cross in its shame. And it says that he scorns it for the joy set before him. And at whose right hand does he find himself sitting, right? Who? It's God. It's God the Father. So he sees, he comes to the cross, but on the other side, think of it as like the fixed point on the horizon. Is God the Father, it's himself, right? At whose right hand he will surely sit on the horizon, as sure as the sun will rise and set, there is God the Father before him. For the joy, his delight is in the very being of his Father, right? His delight is in the sheer beauty and worth of who God is. And his eyes are fixed on that point. Now, Paul is really bold here. Look at this Philippians 4 text too. This is one of our other core texts for this joy attribute. So rejoice in the Lord always, Paul writes. Let me say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. There's another companioning fruit growing up, right? Gentleness. But do you notice that this is a command? Rejoice. It's a twice-stated command. It's an emphatic command. Rejoice. And it's meant to be a duty that is a delight. But I don't know about you. I, so I'm a rule follower. You know this about me if, if you've heard me speak before. I talk about this sometimes. I'm by nature a rule follower. Generally speaking, I, I like to follow the rules because I like to know what's expected of me and I want to achieve and meet people's expectations. As a rule follower, I also, um, I also chafe against that a little bit. And um, even though I will eventually do the right thing, sometimes my initial response in being told what to do is, don't you tell me what to do, right? So, you know, you say to me, Kathy, you should really watch The Mandalorian. You're going to like it. And I'm like, no, I won't. Or I'll watch it when I'm good and ready, but don't you tell me what to do. Or Kathy, wow, you could really rock these 90s fashions that are coming back. You should pull out the scrunchie and the oversized sweater. And I say, over my Debbie Gibson loving dead body, will you catch me in that garish sweater again, right? Don't you tell me what to do. And so Paul comes up and he says, rejoice. Let me say it again, rejoice. I say, don't you tell me what to do, Paul. Confession, this is, this is a little bit, this is what I do. I say, mm, I'll show you, cheerful. 
Lord have mercy on me, but it's true. There's a little bit of me that says, oh, don't tell me what to do. But Paul, right in this short text, gives us the insight we need to understand why this command is meant to be a duty of delight. Nearly absurd not to take to heart. Look at this text again, right? After it says, rejoice twice, let your gentleness be evident to all. What does it say? It says, the Lord is near. Will you say that together? The Lord is near. So even though that that image of the race set before us is so rich and good, the reality is that God is not you know, a a pinpoint far on the horizon that we have to strain to see. The reality is what? The Lord is near. He's so near to us. And brothers and sisters, if the Lord Jesus is your savior, then actually the Lord is so near, he's right in you. And we are in him. That's how near the Lord is. So track with me. If to rejoice in God, to be joyful, is to delight in him, to be conscious of God and delight in the sheer beauty and worth of who he is, and we know he is near, then to choose to scoff at this command is to say, I don't see you. Uh Uh-uh. I don't hear you. Nope. No thanks. I'm just going to not notice who you are, because he's right here. Do you see how absurd that is, right? But it's the mercy of God's spirit, the spirit of God, what the spirit does is the spirit actually turns our attention to the God who is with us. And as the spirit of God turns our attention to that God, we start to consider God from all aspects. And we start to look in wonder at who he is. And I tell you what, there is no aspect of God which you will not find awe-inspiring. There is no perspective of God that you will not find to be perfect. There is no glimpse of God that you will not find to be good. And so in us, we'll well up that delight. As we delight in him, our delight in God will eclipse our delight in all other things, good or other. And if we fix our gaze on this God who is near, our fixation on our sorrows and all other things will also be eclipsed. Right? So when we delight in who God is and the beauty of him, our delight in food and drink and being right and sex and power and all those things will be eclipsed by our delight in God. And when we fixate and we fix our gaze on God, our fixation with our pain and our disappointments and our broken hopes, they won't be negated, but our fixation will continue to be in the person of God. This is joy. Jesus speaks of himself, and he loves to use the garden imagery. John captures it in chapter 15. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My father, he's a gardener. 
And he's kind of a ruthless pruner. He, he really brand, cuts off and prunes all the branches that bear new, no fruit. And even branches that do bear fruit, he prunes so they will be more fruitful. Jesus says, remain in me as I remain in you. For no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Our invitation in this whole winter series is going to be for us to continue to root ourselves in an understanding of who God is through revelation in the scriptures. And uh, when I think about vines, these are uh, pictures of a, a couple of grapevines in our backyard, in our garden. And you can see they look fairly lifeless right now. Um, they've been pruned back, and um, you don't see a lot happening, right? Um, now, in the winter, the thing about the vine is instead of sending its energy and life to the new growth on which the fruit will grow, in the winter, right, the energy of the vine goes into its root system. And it goes into the roots so that when the time to bear fruit comes, it's ready to be more fruitful than ever. And this is what we're asking you to consider in this season. So the question before you, and in a moment I want you to just, I'm going to have you turn to a neighbor and say what kind of is coming to your mind here. The question is, what root strengthening scripture intake practice will you try just this week? And Tom gave us a lot of great examples of what this could be last week. We can hear the word, right? We can listen to scripture. We can read it. We can discuss it with our community. We can pray it. We can paint it. We can memorize it. For me, I'm in a study of the book of James right now, and my commitment is I'm going to memorize the book of James this winter because I want it to be so in me that it could transform me more deeply. So that's the practice that I am going to choose to engage in to strengthen the roots that I might bear more fruit. So I want you to take just a moment and um, even just say the one or two things that kind of first come to your mind as possibilities for me, for you, okay? So turn to a neighbor, and while you're sharing what roots strengthening scripture intake practice you want to try this week, the worship team is going to come up. So go ahead and turn to a neighbor and say what kind of first comes to mind. What's your idea of a root-strengthening scripture intake practice you could try this week? So hopefully something came to mind for you. If not, this is a great room to just ask people, what are you going to try? Give me your best idea. It's totally fine to steal each other's best ideas. Do that, please. And it, the worship team is going to lead us in one more song to fix our gaze on the one who is so worth our praise and who releases joy in us. And then I'm going to come up and I'm going to pray to bless those practices we've committed to this week. So let's stand and worship together.